This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Hey, everybody. In this conversation, we talked to Alyssa Miller. We discussed some of her research into deepfakes and have a great conversation about the cyber implications of deepfakes. If you find this conversation interesting, head on over to HackerValley.studio for more episodes and support us on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash HackerValleyStudio. Let's get to it. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley Studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again here in the studio. We have a great remote guest with us, Alyssa Miller hacker and security advocate at Sneak. Welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks so much. I'm super happy to be here. Glad to have you. You are all over Twitter. You know, anybody that's in InfoSec should be following you at this point. Where the folks that aren't following you yet, could you tell us a little bit about your past and what you're doing today? Yeah, sure. So as as you mentioned already, I'm a hacker, security advocate. Uh, I do some blogging, um, def- yeah, I'm an author, I'm currently working on a book, all that fun stuff, public speaker, although given our current situation, of course, there's not a lot of public speaking happening at the moment. But yeah, I've, I've been a hacker all my life. I always tell people I was that kid, you know, my parents hated giving me toys for Christmas because I always took them apart to figure out how they worked. At 12 years old, I saved up enough money and bought myself a computer, taught myself how to program kind of did some things that I probably shouldn't have with some online services at the time. Uh, so this was a little bit before the actual internet came to the public space. But yeah, you know, I, I never saw it being a career until I got older and dropped out of pre-med and needed to find a new career. And I got into computer science, worked as a, a programmer for a number of years. And then ultimately that fell into sort of uh, my first job as a pen tester. And I've been, you know, working in security space ever since as a consultant at various levels. And now most recently, yeah, as a, as a security advocate or application security advocate specifically for Sneak. Wow. So it sounds like you've like really always gravitated towards technology. I know like for me, uh, it's the same way, but there's certain things that keep me interested. What what has kept you interested for for so long? I mean, I think it is just that curiosity, right? Like, I I just really like to understand how things work. I'm not the kind of person that's really generally very happy using any type of tool or technology if I don't kind of understand the underpinnings of how it functions, and so. With technology, of course, blowing up the way it has and continues, I mean, it's such a dynamic field. We're creating new stuff all the time. There's always something new to learn about. And that that curiosity just hasn't gone away. I just, I really like to dig in and figure things out, take them apart, deconstruct them, figure out how they work, figure out how I can make them work different. Yeah. And one of the reasons we wanted to have this conversation is because recently you got it really deep into machine learning and, and deep fakes. I saw your video on LinkedIn with you being Alyssa Milano. Like, so where did that sort of start? 
And what research were you actually looking into? Yeah, so it, it started last year, probably right around the same time, or maybe a little before. But I, I started digging into it because I'd seen a couple of the videos. The most notable one was the Jordan Peele, Barack Obama video. But I think the the one where they put uh, Steve Buscemi's face on Jessica Lawrence had just come out. And it was, I, you know, I'm looking at that. I'm like, this is really impressive tech. I got to figure this out. So I started looking into it and, it, you know, not only from a, the technical standpoint, but also just from a threat standpoint, like I'm looking at this stuff and I'm seeing, okay, I can put anyone's face on the body of another. This is kind of scary stuff. And yeah, there's some really significant threats there. We've seen it talked about in terms of politics and so forth, of course, again, the Barack Obama video. There's been some Trump videos out there as well that have been deep faked. And so I, I initially started just digging more on the threat side. And, you know, I, I definitely was reading a lot of papers and things about some of the technical pieces of it, certainly to understand how it was created, understanding some of the research that was being done in terms of detection and countermeasures and then early this year, I ended up, I actually just bought a new computer. So I had an old, I, it's embarrassing how old my, my desktop computer was. Hmm. And I, I bought a new one and it came with a pretty powerful GPU. I bought a, you know, a, a mid, middle of the road gaming computer. And with that GPU, I realized, oh, I've got a really nice NVIDIA here. I could start playing around with some of the software that creates deepfakes. I should really figure out how we do this. And so I've been digging into that. And of course, as rabbit holes like that go, you know, I started using just the, the six gig, it was a GeForce 1660 or whatever that's in my laptop or in my desktop that I just bought. And that led into me buying a dedicated GPU card. And so now I've got a NVIDIA K40 in there on top of the, the regular video card. So I can sit there and I can actually run all of these learning, all the training algorithms and things and build the models while using the rest of the computer. But, you know, kind of as things go for security researchers like us, you know, it's, it wasn't even so much about trying to create a video. I mean, yeah, I wanted to, and I successfully, depending on your definition of success, created a video. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it's not as realistic as a lot of the ones we see, but that was kind of the point. Like, I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn the process, and I started learning a whole bunch about deep learning, which I've now gotten more into outside the realm of creating deep fakes. But it also gave me a lot of context into how actually difficult it still is to create these videos. You know, people get really nervous when they see these things. And, and indeed, a number of different apps are out there that bring it kind of to a consumer level. But there's still not, it's not like point and click. I mean, there's a website out there you can create a deep fake with. I tried it. I gave them three minutes of training video, 150 training pictures, and the results were really lackluster, you know, so obviously it's not as turnkey as, you know, people might start to think. And, and that was the point. Now I've, now I'm digging into that deeper and I really want to understand what the thresholds are, what kind of effort it takes, but it's, it's been really enlightening. 
You know, I, I watch uh, something called Two Minute Papers on YouTube. It's a great channel and they like break down research and kind of make it almost uh, to where you can learn how to kind of dissect a piece of research and maybe apply an ML model. I've tried it a few times. It's definitely more work than what it's almost advertised as. Uh, what are some good places to start if, you know, you don't have experience with, you know, re- reading research papers or learning more about the machine learning uh, models and breaking them down from a security perspective? Yeah. So from my perspective, if you really want to get into deep learning, you want to understand this stuff, there is no better place than MIT, who they recently, well, not so recently, I guess it was 2019 now, but they released videos from their Intro to Deep Learning course. It's a week-long immersion course that they do And they have videos of all the lectures out there on their website. And it is absolutely phenomenal. It, what it taught me, I mean, they definitely go into deep fakes, but they go into all the other deep learning concepts and whatnot. And it is a wonderful place to dig into, you know, from there, if you watch that series, you're going to hear a lot about TensorFlow, which is Google's, I guess, framework library, whatever you want to call it for doing machine learning. I would caution people that that is a pretty complex area to get into and actually writing models in TensorFlow and understanding how models are constructed. But the thing is, there's actually just a lot of models out there that you can already use today. The Python libraries are out there. They're typically open source. You can just you know fork them off a of GitHub or just clone them down or whatever you want to do. And you can grab those libraries and you can use them. It's just a matter then of finding the the right model to use for the type of analysis that you're looking for. And it's not even that there's like one right answer. It's looking at the characteristics of the different models and seeing which one is going to really apply to the type of data that you're you're hoping to work with and how you can ultimately quantify that into numerical values so that these models can work with it. That's awesome. So from a, a threat perspective, I, I think of a couple of things. I think of things like wire fraud, right? If you can do a, a video, you know, requesting a wire fraud and it's coming from someone that looks exactly like the CEO, that's going to make it better, right? Just social engineering in general, it's going to make things a, a little bit easier. Do you, do you think of any other types of threat vectors that someone could use this for? And do you think that there is a current capability to do something live? Like, could someone do a video interacting with someone in real time and do a deepfake video, or does it take so much compute power that you can only do pre-canned videos? Yeah. So a couple of things. So you, you asked two really big questions there. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if you realize that or not. Um, so from a threat perspective, there's a lot, right? I mentioned before the political threat. Everybody kind of, I think at this point, gets that one, being able to make different political figures appear to be saying or doing things that they didn't say or do. You bring up a really good point, though, this idea of just uh, social engineering and wire fraud or creating you know, fraudulent transactions. We've actually already seen that. So um, about a year or so ago, there was a CEO of an oil company who received what he thought was a phone call from the president of the parent company instructing him to make a wire transfer. And long story short, it turns out that it was attackers using deep faked audio 
So, you know, we also always kind of think of video first when we think of deep fake, but deep fakes can also be audio. You know, they had used deep fake audio to create audio of the CEO or the president rather of this parent company giving him these instructions. You know, additionally, like I, I spoke at RSA this year on this topic and, you know, really expanding beyond just the political threats. Some of the other things are one that I, I just call it outsider trading. So you think about what your typical insider trading is, you, you know, stocks are going to drop. So you sell off or, you know, stocks are you know low right now and there's something coming up that's going to jump. So you buy, buy, buy. Well, you can do the same thing from the outside. Consider this example. Uh, say Tesla is getting ready to launch their latest vehicle. I don't know why I always use Tesla as an example. I think I'm just like picking on Elon Musk. Um, I mean, he kind of, he, he needs some picking on, but. But in any event, so they're getting ready to launch a new vehicle. And the night before their big announcement where Elon's going to go up there and stand there with a sledgehammer and smash windows or whatever he does, you know, deep fake video surfaces showing Elon Musk talking to investors in a private setting and sharing with them all the problems with the vehicle or the line and it's going to be delayed. Well, now those stocks drop. Of course, right. the next day they launch anyway. Everything's fine. They clear up that it was a deep fake. Well, now the stocks rise back up. Well, if that's an attacker that did that, pretty easy to buy those short stocks and then let them rise and sell them off right away. And then now if you expand on that, of course, if I can do that to an enterprise organization like Tesla, could I do that to their entire automotive market? Or even better yet, could I expand from a market into, say, small economies of different small countries, maybe even impact large economies? So, so there's a lot there to unpack. So, yeah, I mean, the, the threats are very real. Now, as far as real-time threats, thankfully, we're not there yet. For instance, if I look at the video, right now, the way this stuff works is that it is literally taking a video and it's working frame by frame to replace the face that's in that frame with the subject face that you want to create. And so trying to do that real time obviously is significantly difficult to do. And a lot of this training and the various elements that have to happen do take a long time. Now you could have a model all trained up, ready to do this. But even still, if you're trying to adjust live video, one of the things that I've noticed that's really lacking in trying to create these videos is just the facial recognition. They rely on facial recognition, not just for the training, but also when you're trying to replace faces in the live video. And so part of the process, if you really want to make a good deep fake, is you do have to go in there and sometimes you have to adjust how it's mapping those landmarks on a face. It's using 68 landmark points on a face and they don't always end up quite right. And when they don't, it becomes very obvious in the, the produced video that there was that alignment issue. So, so there's still a, a number of challenges there that would have to be overcome for sure. What about audio? Where does that fall into place? Is that closer to being real time or is uh, that also a large, large ask? So right now, it's still a fairly large ask. Obviously, there's been these devices that you can use for years that will at least obfuscate your voice. But trying to actually create a target voice 
is still surprisingly difficult. And I say surprisingly because we've I mean, we've been doing synthesized tones for years and years, but trying to do a human voice and and get all the inflections and everything else, it's so much more infinite than even like a stringed instrument would be. And so you know, there's not a lot of research or, or products rather being produced in that space yet. There are a few companies out there that will do it. They are very tight about what types of material they'll produce and their codes of ethics are, are at least in words, very strong. You know, I mean, I haven't tried, I don't know how well they hold to their codes of ethics, but they at least put it out there and they're all pretty demonstrative about it, that this is what they're going to hold you to and they won't do certain types of material. So you do have to be very careful about what you submit to them. But even then, they're, they're not producing anything in real time. You're submitting audio files. They're spending their time and probably cloud technology with a bunch of GPUs to create that ultimate audio that you get back. Right. Wow. So Ron and I, <clears throat> excuse me, Ron and I did a keynote at the end of last year. And at the end of the keynote, we did a Q&A. And someone asked me, what is the most important skill that I think cybersecurity professionals should have, you know, in their, in their tool set? And I said, mental agility is probably the number one thing because technologies change all the time. Processes change. The way we do business changes. It sounds like you've had a really long career and you don't rest on your experience because some people could you know, start a consultant company and then just kind of ride on whatever they've done. But it sounds like you are putting in the effort to do additional research. You're still asking questions. You're still tinkering around. You're, you're solving puzzles and things like that. Wh where does that come from? And what would you have to say to people that are sort of stagnant and want to reinvigorate their mind? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. And it kind of, it, it's funny because it kind of hits home too, right? So I've been in that situation where I kind of stagnated for a while, where I just, I wasn't feeling it. I wasn't really doing a whole lot of research. And to be quite honest, at times I felt like technology had sort of passed me by. And so I, I did kind of back off from it. But one thing that never got lost in all that is what I call that compulsive curiosity where you know, I'll see technology, I will see something new, and I still just really, really want to understand how it works. And for a while, like I said, I, it wasn't even so much I wasn't interested in it. I almost felt overwhelmed by it, and I didn't feel like I could really dig into it. I felt like I had too many other things going on in my life. It was going to take too much time, whatever. And so that's where you know my advice to people is find whatever way – you can, if you're, if you have that curiosity, which I think a lot of us in the security space do find ways to stoke it. And it doesn't have to be that you sit down. I mean, there, there are people in this industry who will sit down night after night, after night, after night, after night, and just dig and dig and dig into things. It doesn't have to be that. Take time, go to, if you're at a conference, go to one of the villages I mean, I hadn't done Wi-Fi hacking in probably eight years, and I went to B-Sides Denver last year, and they had a, a wireless hacking village, and I went in there, and not only did I learn how to, ha you know, 
kind of refresh some skills and learn some new skills with Wi-Fi hacking, we got into other radio hacking as well. And, you know, it was, I, I'll be honest, I haven't really touched it since I came home from that event. But during that moment, it was just really nice to get back to some of those things and, and learning new skills and, and playing with new tools that had been updated since I had last used them. And, you know, I, I think if you can even find just little things like that, it really just generates that fire. And like I said, with the whole deep fake thing with me now, it's like this has really kind of catapulted me a bit because I it started with just a sort of, I mean, it started first with me just trying that website I mentioned, Deep Fakes Web, and going out there and trying to create this video. And it was because I was giving a talk and I wanted to see if I could create a deep fake of of Alyssa Milano introducing Alyssa Miller, you know? <laughs> and so I, I tried that website and it didn't work real well. And so I figured, well, I knew about this other app called FaceSwap. I'm like, I'll give it a try. It's all Python. I should be able to figure it out. Well, it turns out there's even, it's even easier than that. They have a whole GUI wrapped around it. And so I just started playing with it. And since I had just gotten this new computer that had a strong GPU, I was, I was really able to start doing some cool stuff. And then, like I said, it just turned into that rabbit hole. And I started buying new hardware and, you know, and now I'm sitting here lusting after $20,000 GPU machines and stuff like that. <laughs> that I'm never going to be able to justify buying. But yeah, it got me into a whole new realm of understanding deep learning in general. In fact, I just went to, I just attended some virtual talks. Uh, NVIDIA just had their GPU technical conference this week. And so I got to watch some of those talks as well. And it was just, it was really eye-opening. Uh, a lot of them were centered around how deep learning applies to security. And it was nice to see it presented in a way that wasn't the same kind of over-glorified, over-buzzworded way that we see vendors right now kind of talking about AI and machine learning and deep learning but really practical application of here's how you can use this to do your research. Awesome. Wow. So it, it's, it, it's really, you know, refreshing to hear like how you're constantly fueling your, your curiosity. But right before we jumped on the podcast, you're talking about also having other hobbies like music and art. How do you find the time to, you know, fuel your curiosity while also uh, balancing the, the things that you like to do outside of uh, tech? Honestly, those are the things that kind of keep me sane. So, and that's what I was saying. Like, I'm not the type of person, I can't be immersed in the tech 24 uh, seven. You know, I have to have those times to break away. And, you know, for somebody who does work remotely all the time, I mean, right now with everything that's going on with viruses and things, and right. I don't know when this is going to air, but, you know, we'll probably still be in lockdown when it does. You know, everybody's kind of in that work from home mode. But by having that, I I have that luxury of I can, if I just got off a really long conference call and I'm really stressed or I'm just exhausted from it and I need a break. I can just slide over, grab one of my guitars out of the rack and just noodle on it for 10, 15 minutes. And it, 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 it's a great way to bring back kind of a little bit of mental health. It's a great self-care kind of thing. Photography is the same. I mean, I have to go out different places. I'm, again, of course, limited right now. But typically, I would go out if, you know, if I got to go to the store or whatever, 
throw the camera in the car with me, take the long way, so to speak, and go past some places where I can just stop off. Or if I happen to be driving along and I just see something. That was that was actually a skill I, I learned from a coworker of mine years ago when I did actually work in an office, was he would just he had his camera on the seat next to him every day when he was driving to work. And if he would see a cool scene or something that he wanted to capture, he'd pull over and he'd shoot a few frames. And so I, I kind of have taken that same thing. Of course, now with camera phones, it's even easier. I don't even have to throw a big SLR on the seat next to me. I can just, if nothing else, if I've got my phone with me, I can stop, pull over, and you know, take a few pictures with that and at least capture a good scene. Very I may true. not be able to do all the tricks, but you know. That that's great. I think that definitely provides like more longevity in one's like career, especially if it's in kind of a similar domain. I think having those breaks to not just get caught up in it twenty four seven helps you think differently and and really not get too caught up or burnt out on one specific thing. Yeah, and that's just it. And it's and it's not that way for everybody, right? I like I said, I do know plenty of people who are very much they they are immersed in it every day from from morning till night and if and if that's what works great for me i i need that break i need to step away social media is even it, it can get bad at times but it can also be a, a good release just to break away from from work for a little bit go out and interact with some people on twitter and so yeah it, you know for me and i think for a lot of us just having some other release is really important in these stressful jobs that we work in. Being in InfoSec, we've seen a lot of fluctuations. A lot of things have gotten worse and they've gotten better. But from your perspective, what would you say is your favorite thing that has changed within InfoSec, like within the community? I think the community itself, quite honestly. You know, a colleague of ours, Marcus Carey, just posted something the other day on Twitter about how, you know, when he got into this industry, which was very much around the same time that I did, you know, a lot of the people in this industry were not exactly the most friendly. You know, there was a lot of gatekeeping, a lot of just really garbage behavior. Now that's still there. I'm not going to say it went away. There are still those individuals, but I think more and more, this industry has become more accepting. We got a long way to go, right? I mean, just from a diversity perspective alone, it's ridiculous how, how just, sorry, white male this whole industry is right now. But, you know, at the same time, I think when we do get people of other backgrounds and other, whether it's ethnic, whether it's neurodiversity, whether it's gender diversity, you name it, they're very much more accepted in this community than they would be in a lot of other job industries. And that's something that I really like. I also just really enjoy how close knit the community is. You know, we just, we lost one of our hacker brothers earlier this week and seeing the the whole community just rally around each other, all these people who knew him personally and were very aware of the tragic circumstances of how he died. You know, they had massive support groups helping them because 
people in the community just rallied to their side. And indeed, I mean, you see that all the time in this community and it is wonderful. And that's something that has definitely changed since I got to it in 2006 up till now. It has definitely gotten better. Again, long ways to go. There's a lot of work to be done, but I think it is definitely getting better. And it is in some ways, at least farther ahead than some other industries that are out there. Completely agree. Great. So thank you so much for taking time to talk to us on the podcast. For folks that want to stay in touch with you and all the things that you're doing, maybe some of your research, what are some of the best ways for folks to stay in touch? Yeah, so easiest by far is Twitter. That's where I spend the most of my social media time. So Alyssa M underscore Infosec, so A-L-Y-S-S-A-M underscore Infosec. That's my Twitter handle. Uh, please go ahead, follow me. My DMs are always open. I do, I, I deal with a little bit of a mess out there, just in, but I do keep them open. Otherwise, LinkedIn's another good space to get in touch with me. If you're looking for more of just kind of that, that professional environment, not so much the day-to-day. There it's, what is it? It's LinkedIn slash in slash Alyssa M dash InfoSec. Otherwise, my website where I have my blog, I list my speaking engagements when we are actually getting out in speaking engagements. And that's just AlyssaSec.com. So yeah, I definitely invite people, get in touch with me however they prefer. I'm always looking to continue the conversation as it were. So please do, please reach out. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to have you on and I'm looking forward to staying in touch. We'll make sure we put all of your information in the show notes and see you all next time.